Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How does it feel to have the mighty Atlas-like burden of hosting removed from your shoulders? Oh, You're my free, God. Finally, this has all your opinions. Every Wednesday at two o'clock is just a magic window of opportunity that has opened up for me. I know you guys record on a different day, but like, it's just, I mean, I just, I get drunk at lunch. I just sit around watching Netflix. So so Wednesdays are like the rest of your work week. So you, you, know, you just get drunk five days a week, not four. That must be nice. That's correct. You see, you see what I'm throwing down. That That's added right. fifth fifth day is, is correct. important correct. on the margin. Because who wants to fight hangovers? Just keep going. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the wrath of Sean. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I misread that. That should be say Shane, the wrath of Shane, because we have Shane Harris here from the Washington Post. Hello, Shane. <laughs> That's a pretty good joke because my whole life, everyone has always called me Sean. And really? I'm like, man, even Scott. Even it's both here. a Star Trek reference Sean. and digs into your deep childhood trauma. That was my it goal. Does. It two does. And, two in one. That's perfect. And that is my favorite Star Trek movie. It's one of the best. Agreed. Well, the original or the remake? Wrath of Khan. Oh, it was a remake? Yeah, well, they the, the second remake. reboot movie with Cumberbatch as Khan. Oh, yeah. It was not no. very I good. I mean, as much as I love him, no, he is not. He can't say Corinthian leather. <laughs> you guys remember that? When Ricardo Montalban yes. was like a spokesman for like Oldsmobile or some shit? Oh, like, made with amazing. Corinthian leather. Okay, Shane. <laughs> I almost said Sean, unironically. Sean slash Shane will be Khan in the next, in the third reboot. Sure. <laughs> and of course, I am here, Scott R. Anderson of Lawfare, and I'm here with my friends, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Hello. Hello, hello. How do you like what we've done with the place? How do you like the new curtains, the new rug? Uh, it's really nice. I'm really enjoying this painting that you have behind you. You know, your 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 accommodations feel much more stylish than than the inside of my little studio here with my star spangled moving blankets and my audio acoustic tiles. So I'm liking it. I'm see you have a bar behind you, Scott. This looks very. I am fully prepared. Rational security appropriate. We've we've been expanding a little bit from the Scotch domain though for the last few Ooh. episodes. So fair warning. A little cocktails okay. here and there. Some seasonal brewed beverages. Ooh, so. I like this. I should have yeah. brought myself a martini. I should have had Joe mix me up one. I mean, it's, you know, it's three o'clock. Exactly. 10 more degrees cooler. We're going to have mold wine. It's going to be great. If you're not careful, Seven. Scott's going to go on another pumpkin beer rant. It's going to be big. Oh, are you not a fan of pumpkin beer? Oh, I'm a big fan of pumpkin beer. Oh, you're a fan of it. The, the rest yeah. of us were less into it. It's worse than that, Shane. I love it. <laughs> it's oh, dangerous. man. It's, it's, a, it's, a little, it's a little basic, but it's okay. Oh, it's totally worth it. It's delicious. Oh, it's delicious. I don't know. I don't know, man. This entire episode is just going to be banter. We're not actually ever going to get to the to our topics. Let's just be clear about something. I'm not moderating this crap anymore. I didn't prepare <laughs> shit. I didn't read any of the articles. There's something yes. about a submarine that you want to talk about. Great. Sounds fantastic. You're just going to rip. I hope it's the sandwich because otherwise yeah, we're done. Totally. I'm not responsible for anything anymore. It's, I feel so relieved. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Sean Harris. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here, here all day. We are so excited to have you here, as well as a listener, to join us for today's episode, the Choosy Spies Choose Jif edition. Credit to Alan Rosenstein for the what is my favorite title <laughs> by far good. that we've ever That's had. That's pretty good. That's good, good stuff. Thanks, everyone. Today, we have three exciting topics taken from the front pages we will be discussing. Topic one, the hunt for bread October. <laughs> 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 which, which, by the way, is is my favorite. Thank you, Scott Anderson. That may be it's my single gift. favorite. It's a gift. Favorite topic <laughs> title of all time. We we chose this topic just for the titles. <laughs> which country did a U.S. Navy employee and his wife attempt to smuggle <laughs> nuclear secrets to inside a peanut butter sandwich? Mm -hmm. And why did that country turn them over to the FBI instead? <laughs> topic two. 
Turn after leaving. Is the intelligence community executing its own pivot to Asia? And will the post-withdrawal collapse of Afghanistan stymie that effort? And topic three, you got served. Will the January 6th committees get the testimony and documents it is demanding from former Trump administration officials, among others, over former President Trump's open direction to them not to cooperate? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. I love this topic, and I'm extremely excited to talk about this story. It is the story of one employee, well, now former employee of the U.S. Navy and his wife, who attempted to provide secrets to an unidentified country identified in the charging document as country one. We can discuss what country that might be about submarines. They reached out to country one. They sent a very mysterious letter. They engaged in all kinds of cryptography shenanigans. They even went to the trouble of calling themselves Alice and calling their interlocutor Bob. There's a little cryptography joke for you. They used proton mail. It was very involved. And yet the whole thing fell apart because it turned out that the people they were corresponding with were not the intelligence services of a foreign country, but instead the FBI. And the New York Times write-up of this has a pretty funny uh, summary that says, an FBI affidavit described the Tobas, I think I'm pronouncing that right, as employing somewhat sophisticated, somewhat sophisticated encryption methods, but extremely sloppy practices as they communicated with who they thought were representatives of a foreign power, but turned out to be FBI agents. This story features the couple hiding SD cards in half of a peanut butter sandwich and some chewing gum. I don't know why, but the peanut butter sandwich just really is what brings the whole thing together for me. So I want to know the brand. I we don't know. Maybe Jeff. Is don't it know. smooth? Is it is it chunky? Is it natural? These are the questions that I expect. Is so the question is 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 crunchy peanut butter or smooth peanut butter better for hiding an SD card? I, I actually don't know the answer to this question. I would think smooth because I feel like the crunchy bits could get stuck in the card somehow. But presumably the card was in some kind of like wrapper. I mean, we don't know. I personally just think that crunchy peanut butter is an affront to God and man (laughs) and all that is decent. So I'm just hoping they were smooth. I mean, there's there's a sentencing enhancement. Everyone knows there's a sentencing enhancement for selling spies, you know, selling classified information with crunchy peanut butter. Everyone knows that. Of course. But they inspected the sandwich by eating it. Crunchy would obviously give you an extra edge of cover at that point. You say <laughs> that was what I was wondering. It's not as obvious that there's something in there. Exactly. So there, there are many questions that this story raises. First off, you know, regarding the brand and type of peanut butter. But second off, just who on earth country one is and what do we make of this whole bananas story is this a case where the u.s got lucky that the people who were attempting to commit espionage were stupid is it just that it's actually really hard to do this kind of thing like what the hell is going on essentially is my question okay i take a first stab at country one just because i feel like this is so much fun so like there's a little process of elimination game you can play right where in the indictment based on the communications from mr peanut butter Like there's some indication that he contacts who he thinks is the foreign country. And I guess he's using like Google to translate it. So immediately he's anticipating being in touch with somebody who doesn't speak English or who English is not their first language. So if you then take like the list of countries who would have nuclear technology or maybe who would want it. And this is not a perfect elimination, but you could say, okay, if you take that list of, you know, places where there's going to be a market for this, where he might assume they're not speaking English And it's probably not a Five Eyes country because there was some delay between the period of when the country gets first contacted and then they notify the U.S. government. Like if he was trying to sell this to the Brits, they would call him that day, right? I don't know. I think it leaves you with like France, Germany, maybe India. Those seem like, you know, possible uh, explanations. Um, And were they like waiting to see like what the change in administration would be before they wanted to like hand over this guy. I, I don't know. I mean, like they did wait though, right? There's like some months. There's like six months. months. Yeah. There's, I will say there's a reference to splitting a bottle of wine. Oh, it would be super ironic given all the AUKUS, Australia, France drama. If France was trying to buy nuclear submarine seekers from the United States or, or, or was, or was considering doing so. That would like explain why they were so pissed, right? It's like, we gave exactly. you this guy and then you fucked us. 
Exactly right. I don't think that's impossible at all. It's kind of interesting. It's also, I mean, might explain why like France, despite being really, really outraged, may have even like tamped down or moderate a little bit outraged specifically at the United States versus Australia. You remember they like really saved the harshest hits for Australia in part because this investigation hadn't broken yet. So maybe they didn't want to be accused of kind of doing something that's going to ramp it up in a direction that when it breaks, makes it more complicated for them. Definitely strange timing to say the least. On the question too of like whether this is sloppy tradecraft or not, like all jokes aside about the peanut butter sandwich, which I mean, like if you think about it, it's a fairly innocuous thing. If like you walked by a peanut butter sandwich on the ground in a park, like you're not going to pick it up, right? So you presumably want to put it in something that looks like just discarded refuse. So, okay, Depends on how hungry I was. True. I walked by a peanut butter sandwich the other day and my dog ate it. So who knows what could well, have happened now, to that SD card. Anytime you walk by a peanut butter sandwich, you need to pick it up and see if there's an SD card in it. Clearly. For all we know, Quinta, your dog now could build a nuclear submarine. She your contains classified information. <laughs> yes, your dog contains classified information. Exactly. I grew up in the D.C. area, so for better or for worse, this is not my, oh, man, my neighbor's a spy moment. You know, every couple months or years, I feel like there's some revelation of some suburban household actually holding some sort of spy. And it always looks so clumsy in hindsight. And I think that's because it really these things aren't the super complex, you know, super high tech thing that we're made to expect from Mission Impossible and James Bond. A lot of this is about dead drops and figuring a spot where like, how can I hide this kind of in plain sight through sort of low tech methods? Um, in this case, you know, they actually went to the length of like picking dead drops far from their house and taking other steps like that, where initially they seemed to actually be pretty concerned about security, uh, really different from like the Robert Hansen case, right? Where his dead drop was actually at the park outside of his house, like really like almost within sight of his front door. Kind of absurd when you think about it, if I remember correctly, but I'm pretty sure that's right. In this case, they were actually being pretty secure about it. The thing that persuaded them is that this other government that came to the FBI said, hey, we're going to put up a sign of confidence for you. They cooperated with the FBI to actually send a signal from their embassy, pretty credible, suggesting that, oh, yeah, we did get this and we are cooperating with you. And it's after that you see this guy's whole tone change. All of a sudden he's like, guys, I'm a real amateur at this. Thank God you're real. I was really nervous about what I was doing. I didn't know if I was doing this right. Please give me any help you can. It's kind of sad if you read about it. And he obviously thinks, and that's why he starts talking about wine and stuff, which I agree sounds very French. I will also know the French embassy is as a la Maison Française, like a, a publicly accessible wing of it. Oh, I don't know if that was true on Memorial Day in during COVID. So which is when this supposedly happened. But, uh, you know, some enterprising journalists will track that down. But France seems like a certainly plausible suspect in my mind. And it kind of makes sense why they would go along with this. Look, as we talked about with the AUKUS episode, France has always felt like a little bit of an outsider to the Five Eyes relationship, which nuclear isn't the only component of it, but is kind of a related component to it, particularly nuclear sub-technology as has become apparent in the AUKUS and of All Out. So maybe this is a line for them where they say, hey, you know, we don't want you Americans to catch us spying on them. That's going to put us outside the club. But maybe we'll spend six months getting the information off this chip so that we can try and hack into it later before we hand it over to them. Um, and it makes it a little difficult policy conversation to have that sort of delay because there's that tension and the presidential transition, of course, happening in between these time periods. So we're, we're obviously all having a little bit of fun because this story has some some great details and it all kind of ended okay, right? I mean, it sounds like the release of American secrets was... Uh, you know, either controlled or non-existent or at least minimal. But but there is obviously a very serious counterintelligence failure here on the part of the Navy. And, you know, what we haven't seen yet is what happened there. I mean, you know, the, as the New York Times story points out, the technology behind nuclear submarines is probably the most important Navy secret that exists, right? It's hard to imagine. I mean, given the importance of nuclear submarines for nuclear deterrence and America's first strike capability and, and all of this stuff. Like it's hard to imagine a, a more important piece of technology. And the fact that this was released, right, the fact that this person could have sent it to anyone is incredibly alarming. And so, you know, there needs to be some sort of reckoning. And I, I, I certainly hope that there's going to be a very unpleasant inspectors general investigation for everyone involved in the Navy, you know, especially given that this person was working at the highest levels of the Navy. And so that's what I'm sort of most curious to see. But obviously, we don't have that information now, but hopefully that'll come out soon. And there, hopefully some naval admiral will be grilled appropriately by the, the relevant congressional committees over what, what happened here. One thing I did find interesting about both the reporting and the Justice Department press release and the, the criminal complaint was that there's no indication of why I'm going to mangle their last name again, and I apologize, the 
Tobes or the Tobas did this in the first place, which is just kind of an interesting absence. Um, there's some indication. I mean, the the documents describe how the couple is trying to get a fair amount of money. Um, I don't know, like about what a hundred thousand dollars or so in cryptocurrencies from uh from Bob the person or persons who they believe to be foreign intelligence agency. So, I mean, there's obviously a financial motive. I did find it interesting also just the use of cryptocurrencies. I mean, Shane, I'd be curious for for your thoughts on this. Have we seen that in past sort of espionage cases? Or do you think this is going to be something that starts popping up more and more? Because it is kind of an obvious workaround if you decide that you want to, you know, try your hand at selling secrets. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not aware of a case where somebody's asked for payment in cryptocurrency. Probably there's been you know requests for payment you know in, in ways that can't be easily traced, you know, with bills or deposits or whatever. So it kind of goes to the in the same theme. And then when you know, and when the U.S. pays its assets, there's all kinds of electronic you know obfuscation. I don't know about cryptocurrency, but you know, dummy accounts and things like that. So I wonder, you know, to your point, if he just thought like, well, this is an obvious thing, I should try it because the money can't be traced. And he was using a Proton Mail account too, which speaks to you know a level of awareness on his part of trying to cover his tracks, which you know does kind of go to the point of, you know, as Scott, as you were saying earlier, like up to the point where he believes that he's gained the trust of the government and they've kind of crossed that hurdle, he's being very careful, right? He doesn't want to meet in person. It's keeping it all encrypted. And he's sort of taking the steps that you would expect to avoid getting caught. Uh, you know, it's only when, you know, that that confidence level is reached that he's brought in that he starts getting sloppy. I, I would imagine, too, if you're if you're going to make an espionage case, all of these facts, don't they add up to, you know, clearly, I mean, the fact pattern doesn't need, you know, the fact that you want a cryptocurrency to prove that you knew you were doing something wrong. But obviously, he was going out of his way to cover his tracks. So it's like, you know, you look like a spy, dude. I really hope that because there are many cryptocurrencies, of course. So I really hope this was like Dogecoin or something like that. Oh, one yeah. of the one of the meme. I really hope he asked for $100,000 in meme coin. Unfortunately, it was not. Oh, darn it. I mean, on the cryptocurrency thing, I mean, it does. It's interesting, right? Because this this guy sounds like he, he, he sounds like the sort of person that Googled for how to be a secret spy and, and then got like came across a listicle on how to do it and, and then did that. <laughs> um, I mean, like cryptocurrency, it's just striking as the perfect example of this, right? I mean, there's this idea that cryptocurrencies are somehow anonymous, but they are, of course, not anonymous. They're they're pseudonymous. Right. You, you have an identity and not only do you have an identity, but all the transactions linked to that identity are permanently made public for all to see. Right. So, again, you know, if you use cryptocurrency in the right way with a bunch of other tradecraft, that can probably be effective in certain circumstances. But just the idea that, aha, I'll use cryptocurrency and therefore no one will ever be able to track me is completely false, because if the government or someone has other pieces of identification about you, they can figure out you know, which pseudonymous identification you are in charge of, right? So this, there's, there's like a real kind of amateur playing at being a secret spy thing going on here. But, you know, I'm not sure that that actually captures what should be actually kind of a scary element of the story, which is that this guy was actually pretty effective up until the point that they had the cooperation of that other government, as we noted, on all these technical fronts. And he does appear to have been reasonably self-strained. Now, he was a very sophisticated guy, right? Like he was a nuclear engineer. I think he was a graduate student currently, by my understanding. Technologically savvy. He seems to have done his research on this stuff. He was using Monero, which was this type of cryptocurrency that I think is like specifically designed to be harder to trace even than Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, I don't understand exactly why that is. I need to look into a little bit more. But is one of these new wave of cryptocurrencies aimed towards privacy consumers using Tor, you know, Proton Mail, these other things that are inclined towards privacy, he's able to use them pretty effectively. And then the thing that really gets him is that he gets persuaded by this newfound confidence in his partner to start using their designated dead drops, meaning they can subject them to FBI surveillance. Even if he hadn't done that, if he insisted on his own dead drops, you would have had a lot more luck pulling this off. So I, I think there's actually a little bit of a scary element here showing how complicated uh, the counterintelligence terrain has been when you have kind of technologically sophisticated people using these tools, which are available broadly to the public. There's, there's nothing illegal about them or problematic about accessing them. You made my point. I was just going to say, like, had, he not, had they not been turned over by the host government, presumably he might have actually gotten away with it, which does raise the question of why, if you weren't a U.S. ally like the Brits, if you're the French or the Indians, why turn the guy in exactly? That's strange to me. 
Like you would think, I mean, the French are not exactly our allies in that sense, right? If you had an American who turned and wanted to give them nuclear secrets, you'd think that they might listen, but we'll find out, I guess. But they may have had a slightly more rosy impression of our ability of uh, to capture these people from a counterintelligence perspective than we actually do. Sometimes that intimidation effect can be useful. Yeah. Well, speaking of spycraft, that brings us to topic number two. Over the last few weeks, we have seen a number of stories come out that hint at a pretty interesting shift in the intelligence community here in the United States itself. First, we received word of a cable sent out to CIA missions around the world that made a pretty startling confession, which is that a number of states had had a lot of success in rooting up U.S. spy networks, particularly human networks, meaning kind of in-person human contacts, particularly China and Russia. They also mentioned Pakistan and a few other states to the point where several people have been killed. So these networks, it's already been covered in China, other places were substantially uprooted. Lots of people lost their lives um, and actually blamed a little bit on poor tradecraft and particularly on a shift kind of post 9-11 towards counterterrorism operation where you're used to dealing with less sophisticated actors than foreign states with complex counterintelligence capabilities that can uproot these networks and basically say, hey, look, CIA agents, like you guys need to be a lot more careful in how you recruit people and to calibrate more for the risk of these other actors. This isn't a terrorist group. This is a foreign government, a lot more capabilities. We've also seen the CIA announce that they are closing down centers, mission centers centered on Iran, North Korea that have been established by the Trump administration and opening up new ones, one for China and one for kind of transnational threats and technology combined together in kind of an odd kind of grab bag on the logic that these are the kind of new threats that intelligence is going to have to be looking towards. But at the same time, you know, we have seen a lot of reporting about the intent to shift away from the focus in, in counterterrorism in Afghanistan, that this was actually a stated objective by the Biden administration coming into office, that they've now reversed, at least in that context, in the aftermath of the withdrawal, because intelligence is much harder to gather, requires a lot more resources when you don't have a presence in country, and there's such clear political capital in the counterterrorism game in Afghanistan. Long story short, it looks like the intelligence community is trying to do what a lot of the rest of the government has done with the Obama administration promise and the Trump administration kind of waffled on, which is a big pivot to Asia, focusing on Asia and China. That's a big strategic concern. But it's not clear they're going to be able to pull it off because terrorism is still there. These other threats are still there. and They're at least posing organizational and political obstacles to them. Shame, I, I want to turn to you first as kind of a longtime spy watcher over these sorts of issues. What should we be making? How easy is it for an institution like the intelligence community to make this sort of strategic shift? And particularly as this cable that went out seems to be critiquing kind of the last big strategic shift towards counterterrorism as weakening its organizational capacity, what kind of new challenges is that going to pose for the intelligence community moving forward? Well, I think it's fairly easy for the CIA to say they want to make this strategic pivot, particularly because, you know, I wouldn't say the past 20 years of the war on terror and post 9-11 are just sort of a temporary deviation. I mean, the agency did fundamentally remake itself in some important ways. But this is also an organization that was set up to spy on big nation states and to create political influence in the world, principally the Soviet Union. So in some ways, they are getting back to their ideas of core tradecraft and what that's all about. Practically speaking, how you do that, yeah, it takes time, but the CIA is really is, is good at this stuff. You know, people I talked to when that, that counterintelligence memo went out that the Times first reported and that we, uh, you know, quickly confirmed it, a lot of people were kind of bristled at this and said, you know, look, the CIA has created a culture in which we're expected to recruit lots and lots of assets in which promotion through the ranks as a case officer is based on how many assets you're recruiting. And spying is dangerous. And okay, sure, we can tighten up on the tradecraft, but you know this is a risky game. Uh, and some even pointed out that if this was a message that went out to every station and base around the planet and was essentially secret and not highly classified, it's kind of more of like a "Hey, tighten up" message and less of a you know Houston, we've got a problem here kind of thing. Although an alarming number of these assets are being rolled up, and in particular in one country where the CIA needs to now have a presence and wants everyone to know. We're taking this very seriously. We're creating a China mission center. I mean, I was one of the reporters brought in to be briefed by a senior CIA official announcing they're creating a mission center. So, you know, like you kind of look at that. I mean, some people I talked to were very not, not critical of that move, but said, what took you 20 years or what's taking you this long to do that? 
all of that's to say is that, you know, the agency both wants to be seen as making this pivot and I think is genuinely trying to make this pivot. Recruiting assets in China is going to be really hard. And some people forget this. Recruiting assets in the Soviet Union was freaking hard. It was real hard. And fiction has probably overstated the degree to which the CIA had real operational successes and was just running agents all over Moscow and all over Russia. It wasn't really so. I mean, read books like Billion Dollar Spy by David Hoffman to get an appreciation of just how incredibly difficult it was to operate in an environment in which, you know, the United States had, you know, history moving around. I mean, at one point they were our allies. It's pretty hard for us to operate in a society like China where we don't have the same skills of language, where the surveillance capabilities of the state are gargantuan. Right. And, and, and it is just it's 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 a much more denied area than even perhaps the Soviet Union was. And so I think all of this, you're correctly framing this as like this is the CIA saying they're going to pivot operationally pulling that off is going to be the work of many years to come. And it's going to be really, really challenging. Shane, you're, you're a resident spy expert here. So I'm actually curious how you put this into the kind of broader CIA historical perspective. So you you pointed out that the CIA was kind of initially designed, initially set up to do nation state spying. But in the last several decades, it got away from that, right? And there's always been this tension, as I understand it, within the CIA between intelligence and operations. And obviously, there's a lot of blurring and, and these are not unrelated. But, you know, fundamentally, there's the part of the CIA that you know, does operations, especially counterterrorism operations, as we saw, you know, in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, you know, with the drones and all of that uh, for the last several decades. But there's also the intelligence, which is kind of less flashy, in some ways more difficult, kind of more plotting, but over the long term, arguably more important, assuming that at the end of the day, the, the reason you have the CIA is to provide high quality intelligence, hopefully in a not politicized way to key decision makers. And I'm just thinking here of the you know, really good history of the CIA legacy of ashes by Tim Weiner from from 2008, which which while you know not a popular book, I think in the CIA itself, given how hard it is on the agency, I think makes the really good point that you know every time the CIA deviates too far from its mission of collecting intelligence, whether by technical or human or other means, and it kind of gets too far into the operational side, you know there may be some quick successes, some short term victories, but but it, it's not healthy in the long run. And so to me, I'm curious to know your thoughts, you know, it may be really hard and I'm sure it is going to be incredibly difficult to penetrate China, but I mean, that does seem ultimately what the CIA should be doing. And so, you know, I, I kind of look at this news and I think that, you know, it's sort of about time. And, and the real question, the real danger to me is not, you know, will the CIA be able to penetrate China? You know, it will to some extent and it won't to some other, but will it be, will it keep getting dragged back into counter-terrorism operations? Because, you know, of course, Afghanistan is not going away. Middle East is not going away. All those issues aren't going away. And I'm sort of curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think that, that that's actually the way to think about it, because we should just say for nomenclature's sake too, when the CIA says operations, they mean the, the, the recruitment of spies and the gathering of intelligence. And when they say analysis, they mean what do you do with that information? And then the kind of counterterrorism operations we're talking about are the sort of paramilitary stuff. That's the thing that really kind of, you know, ramped up a lot in earnest within the operations community of the agency, but is something that I think arguably they're talking about getting doing less of. I mean, I think we're not talking about, you know, putting CIA operatives into China to do things like sabotage and the kinds of, you know, special ops work. We're talking about gathering information. But to your point, exactly, how do they do this pivot when the counterterrorism mission, it, it really hasn't gone away. And to some degree, arguably, it's just gotten a lot more complex. President Biden has for a long time been an advocate of this so-called over-the-horizon strategy, which says, you know, we don't have to be in Afghanistan, taking that country as kind of the prime example. We can kind of do these strikes from afar. We can gather intelligence. And when the terrorism problem flares up, we'll just kind of go in and stamp it out. Well, I mean, okay, maybe. But some of that, to some degree, was possibly predicated on the U.S. having some presence or some capability to gather information about what was happening in Afghanistan. The message coming out you know, from my sources and, and from others, I think, now is that's not going to be easy. We don't have the presence that we did before. We're going to be reliant on places like Pakistan. This is creating a new challenge. Is the CIA up to it? Sure, they'll adapt, but is that going to get in the way of or, or be a resource strain potentially on this pivot to China? Yes. The senior CIA official who briefed us on this new mission center also pointed out, 
you know, we have to hire more Mandarin speakers, both native and people who've been trained. We don't have enough there. They wouldn't give us numbers, but they pointed to that as a place where they've got to ramp up. And they're going to start deploying uh, technicians, specialists, other kinds of officers to countries around the world where China is also trying to get a foothold. So think about countries in Africa, for instance, sort of in a Cold War model where we want to go kind of play on other battlefields, if you will, with them as well. All of this takes time. It takes money. It takes people. And again, it's the agency suited to that kind of work historically, but 20 years, the onus has been on the, you know, hunt down terrorists and blow them up part of what the agency does. And they got really good at that. And it's going to take some time to, to kind of come down from that. Uh, you have a senior leadership cadre that's in the agency now that kind of, you know, made their bones on post 9-11, which is not to say that they can't transition and do other kinds of operational work, but that is the culture that they've been steeped in. And so just as it took time after 9-11 to switch away from the old kind of counter-Soviet model, it's going to take some time to switch to the China model. And, and by the way, we're talking about also a new culture, a new society that they have to understand and a target that's not like the Soviet Union. Like the Soviet Union wasn't the world's second largest economy and was not globally integrated the way that China is. And by the way, didn't have massive cyber capabilities uh, and, and a kind of penetration of the U.S. economy in some ways that China does. So, you know, all those make it different. I will say, I find it kind of ironic that, you know, we spent all this time after 9-11 desperately pivoting from nation-state conflict to counterterrorism, only to find ourselves, you know, 15, 20 years on desperately pivoting back to nation-state conflict. But the other point I wanted to make was about your, your point about just how difficult it is to recruit people within China, Shane, because it's not very long ago that the CIA's basically entire list of assets in China was systematically rolled up and killed or imprisoned. I was Googling while we were talking, and there's a reporting on this from 2017, basically since 2010. Just a huge amount of CIA assets within China were imprisoned, killed, otherwise sort of taken out of commission. So, I mean, Shane, I'd Sorry to keep peppering you with questions, but another question for you. I mean, I guess first off, my question is, do we know why that happened? Like what the operational flaw was on the CIA's and and if so or if not, how confident are you that the CIA will be able to recruit people on on their end, you know, given like how confident are they that they can protect people they recruit? And on the end of the recruits, how confident are the recruits that are going to be that the CIA can protect them, given what happened to the last set of guys? Uh, it appears that the primary reason that those networks got dismantled was that the Chinese were able whether on their own or through some assistance from another government, perhaps, to penetrate what's called the covert communications system that the agency was using to communicate with its operatives in the field. And, you know, examples of COVCOM, I mean, you know, as it's been explained to me are, you know, you could, if you were an agent, potentially, you know, go to an internet cafe, go to a particular website and somewhere up in the corner where you know where to sort of put your cursor is a little kind of communications box you can open up and have an encrypted channel into talking to the agency. That's some someone once described to me that that way. It sounds a little bit like something out of a movie, but, you know, you kind of get the idea of the tech that they were using, a lot of which relied on open technology, is my understanding. The Chinese got into that and they were able to use that to kind of roll up some of these networks. Um, and I, there may have been other factors at play as well. So what that one thing that tells you is that the agency is going to have to come up with a better and more secure way of communicating with the assets that it can recruit. Uh, and I don't know the number of assets that they actually had. That senior CIA official who briefed us made reference without confirming them to these tradecraft failures and said, we need to be developing technology to ensure, in so many words, he said, that that doesn't happen. And yes, you have to be able to assure the Chinese that you're going to be assets that you can protect them and keep them safe. I don't know if they're starting off from ground zero. I mean, presumably in the years since those networks have been rolled up, there's been some success in recruiting new assets. But you know, you'll also have to do what the CIA always did with the Russians, which was recruit them in other countries, right? So you go to places in Africa or elsewhere in Asia where Chinese officials are working at embassies and you try to peel them off that way. Or, you know, do you recruit them in Mexico or Canada or here? I think that's going to be probably where a lot of the emphasis is placed as opposed to necessarily trying to find assets per se in China, although that's going to be really important as well. And of course, we have 
electronic surveillance and satellite surveillance and all of these other great things. It won't be purely a um, a human component. NSA presumably has a huge share of this burden just by trying to get into Chinese information networks. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I will say the thing about the story and the set of stories that bothers me or one of the big things that comes to mind is that when you're making this big shift, the one thing that seems clear is that it is going to be, I think, as you noted, Shane, a really sustained multi-year effort. And that is inevitably going to mean something that survives multiple presidential administrations of both parties, almost certainly, in a moment of extreme partisanism, including around national security issues. And so the question in my mind comes to be, are we framing this in a way that the Biden administration is going to be able to sustain it past its own endpoint, whether that's in three years or, or, or seven years? The point here, I think, is that there's a narrative here that's saying, we're, well, we're winding down these Iran and North Korea centers, which at least in some circles was interpreted a little bit about saying, ah, that was like a Trump thing. We're going to end this Trump thing about them to kind of drum up these sorts of conflicts, move towards China. And then you have this other mission center, which has, again, this what I described as a little bit of a grab bag, which is entirely fair, but it's obviously trying to capture a nexus of global health issues, climate change, things like that, which seems like is going to be much more kind of controversial among people who don't share the view of those issues than maybe the China Center does, where there's a lot of bipartisan focus on China as a major rival. So the question to me is, I guess we have to look past these kind of bureaucratic moves maybe a little bit and say, well, what are we actually seeing the big resource changes happening in CIA? What are we seeing about recruitment, which I know is a big thing they're rolling out new steps on? What new resources, what new legislation are we having standing up that can actually sustain these sorts of institutional shifts? Because these big declarations that often are put out there and brought to the media's attention in part as part of a PR move, those aren't actually the things that are going to steer the boat and that can, if anything, sometimes politicize it in a way that's going to make those changes harder to make in the long run. Scott, I, I think you're totally right that in order to have a successful reorientation or pivot or whatever you want to call it is going to take bipartisanship just because it will likely go across presidential administrations, you'll need Congress's involvement, all of that. But I think that with respect to China, at least that shouldn't be that hard. I mean, there's kind of only one bipartisan issue in Congress these days, and that's China. I mean, it's so bipartisan that I think we should worry because, you know, whenever there's only one thing that everyone can agree on, there's a tendency to emphasize that one thing and shoehorn everything into that one thing, maybe even, you know, beyond what it deserves. I mean, China's a threat, but, you know, is it the sort of threat that demands constant bipartisan reaffirmation? I don't know. It's hard to say, right? We'll see. I mean, I, I think you're right that some of these other issues, you know, especially around the kind of climate change and all of that, I mean, maybe more controversial. I, I do wonder, though, how important it is for the CIA to be investigating climate change, not because climate change isn't a problem. I mean, it obviously is. But I, I just, you know, reading the story, I didn't get a good sense of like, what is it that the CIA exactly is bringing to bear in the climate change issue? So, you know, if that's the thing that doesn't quite survive the Biden administration, I mean, that'd be too bad. We should have as much resources working on climate change as we can. But, you know, the, the China thing does seem here to stay. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think the real question is just, is it, if you were wanted to be here to stay, is the framing of this as a more public initiative more useful? Or is it better sometimes to do these things at a level that evades public attention, maybe can't serve as a PR point, but then doesn't run the risk of being politicized or pulled in? That was, I think, the, the main thrust there is that strategic question. 
one last thought on that too is that because they were so public, I mean, they don't normally at CIA bring in reporters to announce the creation of a mission center, is that, you know, policymakers are going to have to be attuned to the fact, and Director Burns at CIA clearly is, that this is not perceived as attacking the Chinese people, that it's aimed at the government, he made that point, and that you don't end up creating a momentum of scapegoating Chinese Americans and other Asians Americans who get kind of lumped into this idea that like China is the big bad enemy and that we should start looking suspiciously you know, at, at Chinese Americans too. I mean, I think that you know, there's an analogy to be drawn of the way that policymakers had to be very attuned to the risk of scapegoating Muslim Americans after 9-11. I think that's there. And it was just notable to me that in his remarks on this that were released publicly, Burns did say, you know, essentially, our conflict is with the government of China, not with its people. And I think that that tells you that they're at least aware of the risks that are involved in a strategy that by their own admission, they intend to be all-encompassing, generational, touching every part of the agency, whole of government. I mean, they're talking about it in these sweeping and holistic terms. I will say, I mean, I think you're you're right, Shane, that the, the agency's clearly trying to position itself as addressing the government of China rather than Chinese people or people of Chinese heritage. I do wonder, though, how much you can kind of put that genie back in the bottle, given a lot of what happened under the Trump administration, obviously not only President Trump's long and well-documented record of racism, particularly when it comes to coronavirus, but also the way that the CIA handled relations with China and, and other government agencies as well. So I hope I hope they can reframe it that way. I sort of don't know if they'll be able to. Quinta, are you talking about the China virus? I was intentionally not using that term, but yes, I am referring to that. I still sometimes have nightmares of that voice saying that phrase in my head. It's just the worst. Okay, so moving from one part of the government struggling to get information to another part of the government <laughs> struggling to get information. That was a segue. Thank you. Yeah, Shane, I, I wanted a rating on that. I'd like a rating on that segue. That's not bad. That's not bad. Thank you. Um, so as part of its investigation into the uh, January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, a special House Congressional Committee has sent subpoenas to several high-level Trump administration officials, including Senior Advisor Steve Bannon and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Trump, however, has asked, or maybe directed is the better term, it's not entirely clear, all of these officials not to cooperate with the investigation. President Biden, for his part, has declined to assert executive privilege over the Trump administration's records, which you know is, is different than the usual practice where presidents tend to to, to want to support executive privilege claims uh, as it applies to previous administrations, uh, just to kind of increase the power of executive privilege generally as a defense. So, you know, what we have is an old-fashioned showdown between Trump and his old administration cronies on the one hand and the House Committee on the other. So, uh, Quinta, you have written and thought a ton about this. So I want to start with you. On what basis are the recipients of the subpoena refusing to cooperate? And is there any legal basis to their objection? I mean, can a former president assert executive privilege? So it depends which of the subpoena recipients you are referring to. If we're talking about Steve Bannon, who was hosting a podcast at the time of the communications with the executive branch that are at issue here, there is no podcast privilege that I am aware of, though maybe there should be one. Uh, so Damn right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that one, I think, is, for lack of a better term, made up. When it comes to the other three recipients of the subpoenas, so that's uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and then Kash Patel and Dan Scavino, both of whom were in the administration at the time. I think Scavino was in the White House. Patel was at the Defense Department, if I'm recalling correctly. Their argument, such as I understand it, is based on the argument that the former president does have some executive, some say in uh, how we understand executive privilege. And we're, they're not pulling this completely out of thin air. There is a Supreme Court case, Nixon versus Administrator of General Services, that basically says the incumbent president obviously has the majority of interest in asserting privilege, but the former president can assert privilege as well. The big point here is that this has never been 
you know, really addressed by a court definitively or or non-definitively in one way or another. And so we're kind of going into uncharted territory here. I will point to uh, Jonathan David Schaub's great piece on lawfare called Executive Privilege in the January 6th Investigation, which is a really thorough overview of the different questions here and the different legal issues. Molly Reynolds and I also wrote on lawfare about sort of the the timing questions um, and sort of where the committee will go from here. So the committee members have indicated that they plan to cite the subpoena recipients for uh, contempt of Congress and then pass that to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. So this is a remedy that was not available under the Trump administration since there's a better likelihood that uh, Merrick Garland's Justice Department will be willing to play ball here. But even if that happens, um, I suspect time in jail is not particularly appealing even to Steve Bannon, but it takes time. The House has to vote. It has to go to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. He has to send it to a grand jury. The grand jury has to vote. Then they have to prosecute the case. So we may not be getting this information that the committee is seeking anytime soon is the short version. The, the legal analysis of this is fascinating. And I will admit this was a new one to me that a former president could assert executive privilege. The politics of this, though, and you guys tell me if you think I'm off base on this, seem really well suited for Donald Trump. Uh, you know, here he can be like, you know, oh, there goes the Biden administration after me again. You know, fake this, fake that. It's another witch hunt, uh, you know, trying to shred my executive privilege of your favorite president. And it keeps alive the issue of January 6th, which you know, going with Trump's general strategy is the thing that you think that he would want to stop talking about. He wants to keep talking about whether it was Russia or Ukraine in a perfect phone call. And now that January 6th has become this great patriot peace march, it just creates another point in the narrative, it seems like to me, and, and allows him to continue talking about himself in the terms that we normally apply to a president, right? I, you know, I get to assert executive privilege even when I'm not in the Oval Office. That's just kind of how powerful I am. I'm not by any means suggesting that like the, you know, the administration or the Congress should not investigate January 6th, but you know, it inevitably seems that it's just going to play right into Trump rhetorically for his base, you know, whether that's an actual viable election strategy to win in 2024 is a completely different matter. I think that's right. That's a really good point about how it, it keeps us thinking of Trump as president, Shane, with that, which I hadn't thought of. But I also think that, you know, usually I cracked that, you know, the prospect of incarceration is not particularly appealing even to Trump's greatest boosters. But it is also true that, you know, if Steve Bannon or, you know, Dan Scavino is locked up in the D.C. jail, that is a great fundraising point for Trump and probably for Steve Bannon and Dan Scavino as well. So the the sort of hyper polarized politics and the hypercharged nature of this among Trump supporters right now changes the calculus in a way that I think may not be beneficial for the committee. I will say, you know, I think this is a case where maybe I have a little bit of a rosier view about the odds of the committee actually getting something here compared to the subpoena efforts of the last four years, which is not saying a lot, right? It doesn't mean a guaranteed success by any measure. There are a couple of factors that are like a little different here. First, the executive privilege claim that Trump could make is weak. We shouldn't have any illusions about that. The Nixon 2 language he's relying upon is pretty solid dicta and something that is a single line that really runs pretty counter if you read it that way to say the president, the former presidents have an independent capacity to assert executive privilege over the current president, which information the president, current president has said, no, this does not qualify executive privilege, which is the case here, or at least strongly implied will be the case when this information is identified. That's a real contrary rub to the actual logic of executive privilege, which is rooted in the idea that the executive, the president, is in the capacity, I mean, the current president, the capacity to judge what is contrary to the interests of the current United States. You know, you, maybe you could see it over deliberative process type items, right? But deliberative process privilege is something that's not unique to this particular context, usually. It's not something we see other, you know, kind of lumping in. It's similar to other privileges we see with like corporations regarding business records and other sorts of communications. And like, we don't see those things 
usually being passed on to like the people who hold hold offices, they passed with the corporate entity whose interest it, it is representing. And that's the executive branch, which is currently run by Joe Biden. So I just think that that's not a real winning argument. And the posture here is really different, particularly, I should say, less for the subpoenas, but more for the records requests that are being sent to the National Archives and Records Administration, among other executive branch agencies, I believe. Because in those cases, those are situations where the actual agency is going to want to give the records to Congress because that's the Biden administration's stated view. And to stop them from doing that, Trump is going to have to intervene and actually secure an injunction preventing them from doing so. Not impossible because there is like an argument for irreparable harm on his part. Like once that genie's out of the bottle, that's certainly fair. So like I could see a court going that way. But there's also arguments for substantial harm and delay on the other side, right? Like this is a threat to national security that Congress is actively trying to address. We have not, we don't have another inauguration anytime soon, but we do have a seating of a new Congress in 2023. It's a very similar event that could be threatened by similar sort of disruption among other congressional activities. So there's arguments on both sides here, and it's going to come down to the district court judge who's going to rule upon those factors and their judgment kind of carries on a little bit there. And so that, that tends to get a degree of deference. So, you know, I think there's argument that you say you could get the sort of information faster than you see in the last four years. The other thing I will just note is I don't think while we've seen the committee say that they want to get this stuff together by spring for their report purposes, I don't think that's the real deadline. The real deadline is January 2nd, 2023, or the day before whatever the day is that the new Congress sets, because that's the day where you may get a Republican House that will end the investigation, right? This information, if it comes out January 1st, then the current House can choose to release it to the public. And then these requests kind of achieve their goals, maybe not as in unified fashion as would be ideal, but it means you have a little bit longer runway than people are portraying here. So a couple of factors why this might be a little little less challenging than some of the other subpoena cases we've seen the last few years. Still, still not a clear 100% sure thing, though, certainly. Yeah, I was. So Molly and I wrote about the sort of the different categories of information and Jonathan did as well. And I think that you're absolutely right that the the requests to agencies are sort of in a different posture than the requests to individuals. And also there there are different questions about to what extent the Biden administration will want to weigh in here and and assert privilege. Um, I do think that that spring deadline is actually they seem pretty committed to it. I don't know how good an idea that is, but Benny Thompson, who is the the chair of the committee, has said repeatedly that he wants to be finished by spring 2022. The reason, as far as I can tell from reporting, is because of the midterm. So I don't know to what extent that's because the committee wants to be finished so they can go campaign or wants to be finished so they can go campaign on the results of their investigation, kind of on the grounds of saying, you know, like, we're, we're defending America from domestic terrorism, like, running kind of on on that. So I will say that the fact that they had such a short clock to begin with, and then they've kind of artificially already shortened it, makes me worry that it will be easy for Trump to run out the clock on at least some of the requests, if not the the agency requests. I don't know. I mean, look, like we've we've seen how willing Trump is to just kind of throw a spanner in the works when it comes to congressional requests for information over the last four years. And I will say that, you know, although the obviously there's a very different posture in whatever cases might result from litigation and these and the committee's request for information, some of the the precedent that was set, for example, in the Mazars case about Congress's request for Trump's financial information has potentially kind of put Congress on on its back foot a little bit in requiring maybe a little more work on the part of the committees to sort of show their work, not because Mazars directly applies to this situation, but just that Congress is sort of on notice a little bit that courts may be more willing to dig into what they're investigating and why. So I don't know. There, there's my there's my dose of pessimism to balance out Scott's optimism. Just one super short thing on on the on the Mazars point. I gotta say I I think you're absolutely right. Like it puts some other demands on Congress, but also guaranteed that Congress can actually has a right to this information if it checks the separation of powers boxes. And this is not a clear separation of powers challenge here because the current executive branch supports releasing it. That's exactly why I think there's a lot more uphill battle for Trump and his supporters than they've experienced the prior four years and why the strategy that they're kind of hewing to may not produce the same results. Well, you're forgetting, Scott, that, you know, Trump is actually still the president. True. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that brings us close to the end of our time. But of course, it would not be rational security if we did not leave you without our object lessons. Uh, Alan, let me turn it over to you to start us out. 
So I love podcasts, but sometimes I want to listen to something different while I'm walking the dog or doing the dishes. And I stumbled upon this wonderful set of audio lecture courses called The Great Courses. Uh, this is probably known to some of our audience, but this is a company that has been basically taking kind of college type courses and turning them into really good audio series. It's sort of like a cross between Audible and Coursera, I guess, right? You take audio courses and you kind of produce them really well. And they started a streaming service called Wondery, and it is really excellent. For like five bucks a month, I spend, I don't know, like 30 hours a month listening to courses on, I don't know, I listen to stuff on English history, Chinese history, the history of Christianity. It is just, it, it is a lovely way of listening to stuff while I'm doing chores. That's also not about current events because as much as I love current events, sometimes you need a break from that. And uh, learning about history uh, teaches you that things were really even worse thousands of years ago than they are today. So I highly recommend it for anyone who wants a break. This episode of Rational Security is brought to you by The Great Courses. Oh my God, I wish. Man, that was good ad copy right there. For a second, I was like, shit, did you guys start getting ads? If you want to run an ad, Great Courses, we're here. You know, we're, we're here. <laughs> so far, we've tried to sell pasta. We tried to sell booze. We tried to sell mechanical <laughs> keyboards. None of it's taking. Linux. Let me tell you about my great purple mattress. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, Quinto, what are you going to try and sell us today? <laughs> I actually, I am going to try to sell you something. Um, what I would like to sell you is uh, Lego. And the reason I would like to sell you Lego is because of a truly hilarious background decision by Trump's uh, former press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, who is doing the press junket for her new book chronicling all of the terrible things that she saw in the Trump administration and did nothing to stop. Not that I'm salty about this, <laughs> um, but she went on Meet the Press and the screenshot that Meet the Press had in a tweet of her background shows she did not include, you know, a flower arrangement or anything like that. No, she has a unboxed, like in the box, Lego White House behind her, which I have so many questions. Why did she buy it? Who gave it to her? Why hasn't she assembled it yet? What leads you to put behind you in Lego during a press hit the you know, small plastic representation of the institution you tried to destroy. I don't know. I, I am deeply, deeply curious. I wonder whether this will start a new trend of people having Lego behind them, you know, on television while testifying. Who knows? But there you go. Lego. Two observations on this. First, one, you'd be shocked by how many people who have worked in the White House have that Lego set. Like almost everyone I know who's worked in the White House Look, man, has that I Lego have the set. Congress Lego set. I, I like exactly. there's no shame in Lego here. The shame is not putting it together. Agreed. I agree with you. That's yes. absurd. That's absurd. It's yes. cool to have that stuff in your house for the record, everybody. Super cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't look to the left to see my Lego collection. <laughs> yeah. But when you're like, you're the White House press secretary who was famous for not doing her job, right? Which was she never had a press briefing. To have the unbuilt Lego behind you is just that's like a great point. Maybe, maybe that's what she was commenting on. Maybe it was a little like, you know, I don't care, do you moment. Although she does talk about the jacket moment, doesn't she? Doesn't she spill the tea on the jacket? And it was like super lame. By the way, can I say one other thing that was super lame that she spilled in that book? Apparently, the whole Trump rush off to Walter Reed visit, right? You know, yes. on that Sunday afternoon was a colonoscopy. What a letdown, man. What a letdown. I'm just going to say this right now, too, as a reporter who spent a not insignificant <laughs> amount of time trying to figure out what that was about. And I'm not going to say any more about it because I'm not the only one in town that was trying to figure that out. You know, the thing I probably never wanted to entertain is like, have you thought about maybe it like wasn't a heart attack or a stroke and it was just somebody putting a camera up his butt? Shane, I totally thought you were going to say, as a reporter who spent a lot of time having colonoscopies. No, I haven't <laughs> had one in days. <laughs> I will say, though, the juicy part of the story, so to speak, is Gross. that he did it without any without any anesthesia because he did not trust Mike Pence to take the reins. Do we that believe that crazy. though? I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe he, I mean, it's like maybe he did it, but he didn't sign over on the 25th amendment. It's just like, just keep him around just in case I don't make it out. One other thing people missed about Stephanie Grisham's desk in the background is that 
she was being interviewed in front of on her desk a jar full of paintbrushes and a half completed painting because that's what she's been doing since she left the white house so it was a little bit of secret viral marketing this is there. a theme this is like work half done incomplete yeah i like it stephanie we hear you reaching out okay we hear you you we hear you trying reaching out to the universe to to, to finish the job start with the legos or the painting just do something stephanie grisham as performance artist oh my god <laughs> Well, for my object lesson, I am continuing a trend of talking about food and alcohol. I will stop this one day because I read books. I'm an educated person and sometimes don't just eat and drink myself into a stupor, but not this week because my wife brought to my attention that I have failed to share one of DC's, Washington DC's best secrets with what is a somewhat DC-centered listenership. So I'm sharing it with all of you now because it is the best treat of summer and it's going to go away soon and everybody needs to run and get it while you still can. And that is that Cotton and Reed Distillery in Union Market in Washington, D.C. has what is effectively a fermented pina colada on its menu called the Coca Motion. It is lacto-cocoa, mm. so fermented coconut juice. It uses pandan, which is like a South Asian or Southeast Asian, I can't remember exactly where it's from, herb that has like a little bit of citrus and a little bit of mint in it. Pina, I don't know what that is, independent of a pina colada, but it sounds delicious. It is so good. And with their really, really phenomenal rum, I hate rum. I am not a rum drinker uh, ever since unfortunate experiences in college. But I come or came around for this particular drink and is makes my day every time I have one. So I highly recommend people get there. So that is my object lesson because it's getting cold soon and you may not want one. So get it while it's still a little warm during parts of the day to make it worthwhile. Shane, let me hand it over to you for our, our closing up. You know, lesson. I'm just, I'm, I'm hearkening back to my days on the pod and I'm going to talk about a TV show and I'm going to say full disclosure. I don't remember if I talked about this TV show once, but I know that I did not talk about this fact that I'm going to reveal about this TV show, which I love, which is called line of duty. Do you guys know this show? The British police, not really procedural. It's, it's about a fictional anti-corruption unit within a non-named British city uh, police force. Apparently, like, also the most popular show in the United Kingdom. Like, ratings completely through the roof. I think it's broken all of the records. And the most recent season, uh, I just finished up. And I'm very, very sad that it's no longer on, although season seven may be coming. But it turns out, you know who else is a huge fan of this show? The Queen. The capital Q Queen. Queen Elizabeth herself, uh, according to the Evening Standard, so you know it's true. Uh, it says it was the gripping police corruption show that has hooked us all in lockdown. But Line of Duty has been given the royal seal of approval with the Queen reportedly a big fan of the BBC series. So, so it turns out that while the Queen was like isolating at Windsor Castle, which you do when you're the Queen of England, she was watching the show and then like talking about all the plot lines with this man, Vice Admiral Sir Tony Johnstone Burt who was one of her closest aides. So like I have a friend, Dave, who we text about line of duty. So like, I mean, one of us is the queen. I mean, we could both be the queen in this situation, but like they're doing it just like us, like texting back and forth. Like, you know, like who is H and like, you know, like oh, what's going to happen to D.I. Arnett. If you watch the show, you know exactly what I'm saying. The queen is doing this too. And it's amazing. I love it. She's totally into catching bent coppers. Again, if you watch the show, you know what I'm saying. I just am delighted by this. Queens are just like us. And this show is excellent. It's compulsive police procedural watching line of duty. Do we know Do we know what else the queen likes in terms of media? Or is I'm it just this I guess show? she doesn't love the crown. Not the last season, certainly. Yeah, right. I don't know. Oof. I don't know what else she likes. I think she liked it at the beginning. I don't think she likes it yeah, anymore. I don't know. That's a good question. But I'm guessing like if she's like super, super into this, like I'm going to say like Line of Duty is not, it's not the most like highbrow of highbrow shows. It's not lowbrow. It's like right in the middle. Like it's not the Bureau, but it's also not like NCIS. No offense to the people who make NCIS. It's somewhere in the middle. So I'm guessing it's like maybe she's like, is she like a Law and Order fan or like, you know, early season ER or Grey's Anatomy, like, you know, or maybe a more late season, like not too, too complex, but I think she clearly likes a good character driven narrative and she likes Nick and Bent Coppers. She is very into that. I would never have guessed that's what Nick and Bent Coppers means uh, off the top of my head before this episode, but I'm glad to I know, know now. I feel like it's going to save me some embarrassing I just, I just talk future. like a, I don't know, a Manchester native now. It's just great. 
so educational this show it's like an episode of peaky blinders i love it i love it well folks that brings us to the end of this week's episode rational security 2.0 is like its forebear a production of lawfare you can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com where you will find liner notes for this episode including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed you can also still purchase rational security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And whenever and wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your friends, loved ones, enemies even, whoever you want, just whoever you got, send it along. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. Our producer, still, as she has been for a very long time, even though I've been forgetting to credit her since she got back on vacation, is the eternal Jen Patcha Howell, National Security's secret fifth member. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, and our special guest, Shane Harris, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 